And now it's time for another Dr. Film Podcast. Remember, the Dr. Film Podcast is sometimes serious and sometimes silly. So today we have Eric interviewing historian David Highway about a project we're both involved in, saving some historic films. It's a little calmer and more sedate than you've been hearing, but we like to mix things up. David, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yes, it's a uh, previously undiscovered short bit of film, about 20 minutes perhaps, of uh, the local Kiwanis group, which doesn't seem particularly exciting, but at the same time, it's a document of Noblesville and Hamilton County in the 1930s. It was done in about 1935, 36, and uh, shows them doing various charitable things. Well, well, as you know, Dr. Film caters to an international audience, so a lot of people may not know what Noblesville is. Can you help us out on that? Okay. Noblesville, Indiana is a small community, well, moderately sized community, uh, just north of Indianapolis, central Indiana. It is a, uh, I don't know, a fairly typical sort of Midwestern site. Uh, nothing really in particular about it other than that. Well, it's the only Noblesville in the entire world, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. There was a Nobleville in New York about... 1880s, but no, we are the only Noblesville, so if you look it up, that's how you find it. Now, the criticism here would be that nobody cares about this. That's a very small, insignificant project, and that there are bigger fish to fry in the filmic world. Why is this important to you? It's important to us because it is a document of the community. This is a sh- social artifact, and uh, this artifact is, gives it significance in that fashion. Um, this shows the community in the depths of the Depression. It shows people doing charitable works. It shows a lot of things that kind of give meaning to this sort of stuff. So whether or not it, it does have some sort of greater thing like that, it still has. it's important in an Americana sense. Wow, Americana, something yes. that we don't have enough of anymore. I see this as an important smaller project, much like the Milan High School games that I did a couple of years ago. I know it's not your county or your area of expertise, but it is history. Can you tell us a little bit about why those games are important? Well, it's a, it's a geographic thing. It is a, a, a proximity sort of a thing. Basically, basketball in Indiana is this huge, huge sort of a thing. And, of course, Milan's important, uh, the 1950s games there, because they, of course, turned that into a real movie, which was the movie Hoosiers, which has a deep impact on a lot of us there. So, so this is, it's an identity thing. It's like showing Times Square in New York in the mid-century, this, this is something that says, this is who we are. And so even though it just seems to be a basketball game, it's like saying Times Square is just a street scene. Yes, I got a lot of people. In fact, my, uh, my lab guy in New York criticized me. He said, this is just a basketball game. Nobody wants to do this. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, 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 this is really important. Mm-hmm. What's odd about that is that you'll get funding for restoring a film about Times Square, but getting funding for doing a basketball game was hard until I made the case that it was a piece of Americana and it was a piece of social history. And, of course, people fall all over themselves to uh, get copies of that because they're excited about it only in the state of Indiana. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of like um, there was a film out uh, where they put a strapped a camera on the front of a trolley car, I think. It's in a cable car in uh, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it's tremendously exciting to watch. Now. It's right before the earthquake, too, if, you've, if you know about that. Yes. I 
So it's right before the 1906 earthquake, and so they had strapped a camera on the front of a trolley car in San Francisco, and you get to see some of the only existing footage of some of these buildings before they were flattened and burned. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing stuff. So, yeah, all very, very relevant. In your Noblesville films, is there any footage that's the only existing footage of something important in Noblesville history? Uh, pretty much all of them. There is buildings such as the Wild Opera House, which has been gone since 1959. The big thing that's interesting is the fact that it shows the poorer sections of town because that's where they were doing their charity work. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, some of those houses may be there, they may be not there, but it shows them as they were when they were occupied by these uh, working-class families that uh, didn't have a lot to go on. And so they're very, very basic sorts of buildings. And it's, it's an interesting look. This isn't your gentrified, restored, you know, stuff that people have come in later saying, look at this wonderful Victorian home. This is somebody who's barely making a living. We've got some really interesting footage of some, some white guys playing Santa who are catering to an African-American family. Absolutely. Um, there are African-Americans in the group. And, and they're kind, kind of creepy-looking Santas, too, but that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, that's, the Santa was definitely low budget. They, they, <laughs> they, did not, they did not have the money to get him a really nice suit, so this is not Miracle on 34th Street here. So. No, it's not, but it's, it's uh-huh. some pretty amazing stuff. And you can even see in some of the footage uh, that uh, what movies they're running at the Diana Theater, mm-hmm. some of those things, some, some amazing stuff that you don't normally see. Mm-hmm. How are you intending to fund this restoration? Well, right now we're looking at a, um, obviously, a Kickstarter, an online campaign, something like that. So uh, hopefully that will do some of it. We need to get that going here very soon. However... <laughs> If he does get it going, I'll say while he's coughing, I will put a link to it on my Facebook page, which is drfilm.net slash Facebook, which you will be able to find, and I'll put it on my homepage, which you'll also be able to find, and we'll make sure that it gets some promotion because I think it's important, and not only do I think it's important, but I'll get paid for it if we raise the money, and that's important because it keeps me solvent and restoring more films that nobody cares about. Sorry for a little plug there. It was necessary, though, because mm-hmm. that's one way to do it. The thing is is that there's a lot of interest locally in the film. There, uh, I recently spoke before an antiquarian group, a group of uh, women who are interested in older stuff, and they immediately said, yes, how much can we give you? Uh, so that was, that was nice to hear about. Um, there are other people. It just needs to be organized as much as anything else. There was one woman who was watching it who saw the scene in front of the Wild Opera House where they're loading Christmas presents onto the trucks, and she went, okay, the guy in the uniform, I think that's my dad. Wow. So uh, that, was the, that was pretty impactful. There. See, that's the kind of stuff that you just don't get any other place. You, know, you, you see these films that are 70 and 80 years old, and, and you hear, oh, that's my dad, or oh, that's my mom. Oh, she looks so young there. I mean, you just don't see this in... In a Hollywood movie, it's it's some it's a different kind of film preservation, but mm-hmm. I think it's critically important too. Yeah. So, what's your end product going to be? So, some of my projects are archival film. Is this going to be archival film? I would love for it to be archival film, but I don't think we'll ever be able to make it to that level. I think most people will simply be happy with a DVD of their own that they can take home and kind of show off and kind of say, look, here's our thing here. So, uh, And as I say, some of the um, local community groups are going to be interested simply for the shots of the town itself, for the environmental shots as much as anything else. Um, and there's, there, we'll have to see how the footage responds. There's a wonderful scene of a lot of children that are getting a free hot meal in the middle of the day. They were in one of the poorer schools. And so they're just 
like dozens of these kids that are coming up and taking these mugs of, of, of hot stew to go ahead and get that. And it's the dead of winter. Some of them are thinly clad. It's really an interesting sort of a scene. Mm-hmm. And I've always kind of felt that with some of this stuff, as it gets better known, other people are going to look at it and kind of realize for larger projects that, okay, this is an interesting bit of footage that you don't usually find. Right. But it's not going to be usable until we get it cleaned up and, and available. Yes, the footage as it was shot is extremely dark and it has not aged well, and so it's going to need a lot of what I call extreme unction uh, in order to get it cleaned up to the point where you can actually see it because most of the darks are so black that it rolls off into the bottom of the, the picture area and you end up having to brighten it up just enough so that it doesn't look fake but enough that you can start to see the details in it. It's been very rewarding to do that because I've seen a lot of good data that comes out of it, but uh, it's going to take a while. It's going to have to be done shot by shot. Mm -hmm. And also they did this in a very strange way by having a hand-cranked camera for every different shot, and so the speeds are different all the way through, too, which is kind of strange. Very strange. It's it's, And it's random. It is absolutely random. Mm -hmm. Is there any other film history that Hamilton County is famous for? And on hold back, don't go too far, but I, I know. It depends on whether you're talking good or bad. So. Oh, oh, let's hear all of it. Okay. Because I'm, I'm about film history. I don't care if it's good or bad. Let's just do it. Okay, let's see now. Um, earliest days, I mean, we sort of connect to the silence because we had a local guy named Otis Bart, o- Bart who was a buddy of Tom Mix, mm-hmm. um, and they served together in a, in a Wild West show, and, and uh, o- Bart claimed that Tom Mix actually owed him some money. And this was in the mid-20s when Mix was huge. Mm-hmm. So that was back in the silent days. Um, we had one guy who was in silent and sound who's our, really our only A-list celebrity, and that, of course, is Norman Norell, mm-hmm. the famous fashion designer. He did silent work for Gloria Swanson and Rudolph Valentino. In Zaza. In Zaza. Yes. And in something called The Sainted Devil, which is lost. Mm-hmm. But then some 50-odd years later, 30, 40, something like that, uh, 1960s, he's uh, doing work for That Touch of Mink, for Cary Grant and Doris Day, uh, Wheeler Dealers with uh, James Garner and Lee Remick, and um, I think some other stuff. His stuff was, people were interested in it, but it, it's interesting nobody really made the connection between the very, very early days and the very late days. Well, so. Zaza is now out on Blu-ray from Kino, mm-hmm. uh, which means that Brett Wood needs to send me a check for promoting his work. <laughs> uh, I've not seen it yet, but I'm told it's quite good. I was watching it the other day. I was working on some stuff about Norell, and um, I didn't watch it all the way to the end, but it looks very good. Now, I know you've held back because there are some other really good Hamilton County stories about movies, and I happen to know them, so I, I'm going to encourage you to go forward and tell some more of that. Okay, let's see now. Once again, um, one of the good, well, good is a relative statement, but we have, of course, the Hoosier Hotshots, um, who were humorous musicians, worked for the National Barn Dance, went to Hollywood in 1939, did 22 really bad musicals. Uh, And when you say really bad musicals, I've seen most of these, and they're really bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were there to provide humor. It was filler. It was just kind of like... They're usually the best things in the film. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the films are so bad that you could just take four or five of them and cut them together and make one film out of them, and it would be hard to tell Mm -hmm. where the seams were because they're so repetitive. And they use the same cast. Um, They use the same sets. uh They they even have chases around the same tree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a wonderful thing. Now, the final one that is kind of oblique, 
Um, well, we have a couple of obliques. Uh, for instance, Trigger, Roy Rogers' horse, was actually trained by a guy from Noblesville, originally called Golden Cloud. And, and Trigger, of course, is also in The Adventures of Robin Hood. Trigger was ridden by, uh, wasn't that Olivia de Havilland? Olivia de Havilland. The, yeah, so, so Trigger's writer is still alive, which is kind of cool. Incredible, mm-hmm. actually. So, She's 102 now. Oh, my word. So, but, uh, yeah, so Trigger is kind of oblique there, but, but the really oddball one is a guy by the name of William Dudley Pelly. And Mr. Pelly was not from Noblesville. He was absolutely not from our community at the beginning, but he was originally from Massachusetts, short story writer, went out to Hollywood to become a script writer and worked with Tom Mix, Colleen Moore, I think, and a lot of films with Lon Chaney. Uh, he, was in, he was only two films with Lon Chaney, but he was a friend of Lon Chaney's. Okay. Yes. So, and sometime in 1928, uh, Mr. Pelly suddenly went through some sort of weird life change thing where he decided to start his own religion, uh, which, uh, after which he decided, okay, I need somebody to be sort of the leader of my religion, and this was in about 1932, and he said, well, there's this Chancellor of Germany guy that I think is going to be really, really crucial to this. So, in a short way, William Dudley Pelly became one of the leading American fascists in the world. His transitional work is called Seven Minutes in Eternity, mm-hmm. which you'll find. It's an interesting... Mm-hmm. It's an interesting kind of book, and as he got older, he got a little stranger. His Lon Chaney films mm-hmm. both survived. They're, they're quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, The Shock from 1923 and The Light in the Dark, which is also known as The Light of Faith from 1921, and they're both around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in fact, The Light in the Dark and The Light of Faith exist in two different cuts, which is kind of interesting. It'd be interesting to restore that, just from a social history point of view. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's even worth watching. but uh, Oh, I've seen both versions of it. Eastman House has the long version of it, and it's actually substantially different from the, the regular cut, which is only about 30 minutes long. Okay. The full cut's about 60 minutes, and it's very Pelly-ish, if you know Pelly. Mm-hmm. And, and full disclosure, I knew... William Pelly's son-in-law, mm-hmm. who just died uh, in January this year, and I knew his daughter, and uh, she died about 10 years ago. She was 90 when she died, and and she had actually known Lon Chaney as a little girl, so mm-hmm. I got to meet somebody who'd known Lon Chaney, who's been dead since 1930, so that was mm-hmm. kind of cool. And then, and then his uh, son-in-law, Mel, just died this January. He was 101, so... Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, his connection to Noblesville came in 1940. Um, he had to skip out of South Carolina, where he was at at the time, because he'd written some bad checks. And um, there was something going on. For some reason, he decided that Noblesville was the place he needed to land. Um, he tried to buy the local one of the local newspapers, and they told him to get out once they figured out who he was. Um, so he eventually just bought a building and set up his own printing press there. And the first things the local did was break all of the windows in his building. So um, he, he was not... Not particularly wanted here at the time. That was in 1940. By 1942, being a fascist was considered a bad thing. So um, he ended up uh, going to jail for sedition. Now, he got out of jail after the war in the 1950s and came back to Noblesville and apparently had calmed down a little bit. He'd calmed down rather substantially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the first guys he hired after he got back was a gentleman by the name of Murphy White, who was African-American, who was actually the first African-American to sit on the Noblesville City Council. Which is why all this stuff is always more complicated than you think it is. Mm-hmm. So, um, and he stayed in Noblesville till he died. He is buried at Crownland Cemetery. Mm-hmm. So. He died in 1965. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about Zaza. Do you know anything more about that? That it's interesting. In Gloria Swanson's autobiography... <coughs> 
she talks about going to work on this film and hearing that Norman Norell is going to be the costumer, and she's so terribly excited about it, except for the fact that Norman Norell had just graduated from the Pratt Institute. He was nobody. He barely changed his name from Norman Levinson, which is what it was originally, to it, Is he related to the Levinsons who used to have the department store here? He is definitely related to them. Uh, the patriarch of the group was N.D. Levinson, who came over from Germany in the 1850s. He had two sons, Solomon and Harry. Harry Levinson was Norman's dad. Okay, just for those of you who are in our international fan group, uh, Harry Levinson's was a very famous chain of uh, clothing stores in this area for many years. I think they're now gone. Yes, uh, they but, closed in the 90s. Okay, but they, uh, they were around for a long time, and they were considered very high class. Yeah. Big on the hats, haberdashers. Mm -hmm. So, um, as a matter of fact, they were one of the groups that when Kennedy stopped wearing hats, they were so disappointed because it just killed their business. Mm -hmm. Well, David, we're about to reach our target time. What other things would you like to talk about? It is interesting to hear your blog, to read your blog, to hear your stuff, and hear you talking about preserving these bits of social history. I'm not a film guy. I, I wouldn't know a good film if it bit me in the leg. It's kind of like, okay, fine, that's people on the screen there. But I understand that a lot of this old stuff is really significant. It is the pop culture. It is kind of the, 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 the language of the people from the time period. And this is something I deal with as a historian, is trying to tell folks, okay, you're reading this newspaper article, there's all sorts of little subtext in there that's related to other bits of popular culture or current events that you don't recognize, so that you, know, you have to bring it back. So these films that you're preserving, whether or not they're some sort of grand epic you know, classic or anything like that, they're still part of the language of the time, so it's really, really important to keep them. <laughs> all right. Well, David, thank you for being with us here on the podcast. And I hope that your project gets funded and I get to eat for a while. We'll certainly try. Okay, thanks.